0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of E-Work Life, a podcast where we talk about productivity, well-being and work-life balance. We talk to scientists and others who can help us make the most of our technology to get our work done, to keep connected to others and to support our health and well-being. I'm Anna Cox, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at UCL in London and your host for this episode. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. David Ellis, a psychologist with a keen interest in technology and the data it produces. We talk about how he owes his career to his mum, who first suggested that he study psychology at university, how a curiosity to play around with technology lies behind much of his research and the methods that he uses, and the importance of thinking carefully about what data is collected by scientists, so as to put the participants in control of what they contribute. But before that, let's listen to some top tips from our other guests about how we can use technology to survive the digital age. I'm Cathy Stavash, a lecturer at Cardiff University. My top tip for using technology to support your health or well-being is to think whether you need the technology in the first place. Sometimes the best technology is no technology at all.
1: I'm Sandy Gould. I'm a lecturer at the University of Birmingham. My top tip for using technology to support your well-being is to take five minutes now again to look through your old photos. Deleting the junk will make you feel organised and you also get a nice reminder of the fun times that you've had.
0: Now to today's guest. Dr David Ellis is an Associate Professor in Information Systems at the University of Bath. His work considers the data that digital technologies collect and how the resulting information can provide insights about individuals and their behaviour and the impact this technology has on people and society more broadly. Here's my conversation with David. So welcome, David, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Hello. Nice to be here.
0: So I wanted to start back at the beginning. Um, As an undergraduate, you studied psychology at the University of Glasgow. And I wondered where the interest in the subject came from.
1: So I was originally going to do medicine. And that was what I thought I'd do. And I think I realised when I was still at school that I didn't really want to be in hospitals. And I didn't, re- I, d- I don't know why I thought medicine was a good idea. I think it's what teachers often thought, or if they do science, was get them, get them into medicine. And I think a few weeks before, or in the run up to applying for university, I was having this crisis of what am I going to do? And if my mum listens to this, she'll love this, because my mum basically said, Why don't you do psychology? Why don't you do that? And basically, I didn't really know much about psychology, and I thought, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And that was really, there was no planned, like, decision, um, and I went and did psychology. So that was, that was how I ended up doing it.
0: So you didn't have an idea about, oh, and it'll lead me to doing something in particular?
1: Not really. I mean, I think that a lot of people, I still was clinging on to this uh, practitioner thing of like, maybe I'll be a clinical psychologist as, you know, tons of people who do psychology initially think that's what, what they might do. And I was probably part of that. And there was sort of like a turning point in my third, the summer between my, it was in Scotland, so there was four-year undergrad and the summer between my third and my fourth years. I was really lucky to get a kind of, um, a sort of student scholarship to do some research over the summer. And it was, with, it was like between the university and a, and a private company. And I think that was the first time where I was like, oh, actually, this is quite fun. I could, I could see myself just doing this. And I just thought it was awesome. I was getting paid not a huge amount of money, but I just thought oh, I'm getting paid money to just think about stuff and come up with ideas. And I thought, oh, this is, this is quite good. And that was what then led me to finding out what a PhD was and speaking to people about it and being quite naive, probably.
0: So, so when you went into doing the PhD, did you do that with, an, with the idea that, okay, I'm going to be on this academic track then?
1: I think so. How fixated I was to the academic track, I'm not sure. But I, I definitely, I liked just thinking and learning and being in that environment. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember like approaching, who was my undergraduate supervisor, and I was like, I think I want to do this this PhD thing I probably was very kind of naive and sort of oh it'll be fine and I remember him th- saying you know oh, that's good you know I'm glad and, and I mean I sort of realised now I kind of put all my eggs in one basket hoping that I would get this funding and I knew it was competitive but I, I don't know what I thought I was doing because I didn't apply for others I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't gone I mean I would have probably gone somewhere else but I just I just thought I'll do that then and, and yeah that worked out but I didn't I wasn't thinking long term I was just, I was just amazed that I was like, I mean, I remember explaining to my dad, you know, various times, you know, you get some money to just go and do some stuff and explain to my dad was like, you get paid to just think and learn. I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, sounds all right. Yeah.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing for your PhD research?
1: Yeah. So it sort of started off very, I would say very traditional psychology research and that was running experiments in a lab, as you would expect, um, very kind of cognitive psychology but it started to explore more uh social constructs of time and and how behavior changes over time and this coincided with i I spent a few months at the scottish government and i realized now that i was moving into like more sort of computational social science but no one had really don't know if that term existed there but it was like this access to these big data sets and i kind of realized then that there's all this data out there about people uh, and I could still run things in a laboratory, but there's all this potential outside of that. And, and that, that was really exciting. And so my supervisor sort of nurtured that interest, I guess. Yeah, so it, it was quite, there was lots of different methods in it from very small experiments where you might only have 20 or 30 people all the way through to, you know, millions of people in, in sort of um, government data sets. So it was pretty broad. It was probably too broad. And uh, there was no, like, it, I suppose you always reflect back on things, but. I got a good set of experiences and different methods, which was quite nice.
0: And and you said then um, that you were looking at how behaviour changes over time. So lots of people might think, well, what do you mean behaviour changes (laughs) over time? So,
1: So I was looking at sort of specifically, so I'd done these like really kind of small scale experiments where I had sort of, I was trying to explain why, Uh, if people have ever experienced why they get confused with what day of the week it is. I was trying to explain why that sometimes happens. Um, And it's partly because people have got really strong associations with the beginning and the end of the week. So if I ask you what day it is on a Monday, you're twice as fast to respond than if I ask you on a Wednesday, for example. But these associations are really, uh, like you have very negative associations. People tend to have negative associations with Monday and positive with a Friday. And we're interested to see if that, if that kind of bears out on like larger data, you know, in other pa- patterns of life, and so you find that people miss more doctor's appointments at the start of the week than the end of the week. But one of the things that was more interesting about that was that while that was quite nice and it supported some of this earlier experimental work, this this kind of Monday to Friday decline, if you like, was much stronger in younger patients than older patients, and so that gives you some opportunities to move appointments around to maximise attendance. Uh, and that, that led to like a whole lot of work afterwards with other people on, that I'm still doing now, on appointments. Um, but it also, yeah, kind of, this applied, this notion of, like, taking things outside a lab, applying it. Um, I had an interesting time at the Scottish Government that, uh, that made me more convinced I wanted to stay in academia, I have to say. I, I enjoyed it, but I wanted back to university after those few months.
0: So... Um- do you know why young people behave differently to older people in this?
1: So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably, it's more speculative at this stage. It's probably got something to do with the fact that once you're retired, your, your kind of weekly cycle is a bit more, you know, you, you might not be working on a Monday. You've got the weekdays mean less in that occupational kind of context. Whereas younger people, or I say younger people, it's a big age group, but, you know, people who are in the working population, they have that pattern and and it it's it's quite a small effect but it's quite significant and we we ended up years later doing work with a clinic where they strategically moved appointments to different days of the week and we were able to show that you can actually save a lot of money and a lot of time um and yeah that sort of i mean it's like everything it sort of led to meeting other people and developing new connections and then doing more work of that that ilk if you like so
0: so is it this kind of like using large data um, is, is sort of a theme that runs through your work, like looking at data. So is that kind of where it came from?
1: I, I think it probably did, I think. Um, I think when I moved from Glasgow to Lancaster for the first time, I was then exposed to not only all this data, but wearable technology, which was like more kind of lab, wasn't wasn't really as wearable as it became, but it was that also was just like, well, there's there's so much we can do with this and interestingly again I was running lab experiments again, but I was probably being drawn towards like what's going on outside the lab. Um and, and I think that's why that was always just so appealing to me. And I guess like I was always interested in technology, you know. I'm the sort of person that was as a student, I was in a band and I played a synthesizer because I was interested in technology. I wasn't a very good musician, but <laughs> that's 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 what I was interested in um so yeah it kind of brings those two things together I guess
0: so that work that you started to do then was was it still thinking about health context so using the data for that kind of purpose
1: yeah I think I think initially and um, well I suppose at Lancaster yeah some of it was some of it was was more kind of Occupational, in the sense that we were looking at how groups of people behaved outside a lab when they were doing different tasks. And, and I was getting introduced as well to new types of data, like linguistic data, when you record conversations and how you can then have that transcribed. And that was all kind of new. Uh, I mean, I, I, one of the consistencies is that I've always been given quite a lot of freedom by PIs or, or other people I've worked with, which is really exciting. Uh, it can be quite hard to know what you're doing sometimes but you become really independent and sort of you just kind of get on with it sort of thing
0: so have you developed particular strategies for that then for working out if you when you're given all of this freedom like what to go and do
1: yeah i mean it i i kind of i suppose I was, my my phd supervisor was always really kind of like he liked I liked ideas, likes ideas, and I, I was always a bit like that as well. And I think if I've got an as long as I've got ideas to do things, I've never got a shortage of things to do. It's it's funny actually, you know. I've, I've spent years sort of escaping the laboratory, if you like, and now I'm actually coming back to it in more recent work. And I think it probably says a lot about my own attention span of like just. I moved to what you know. I've been really lucky that people have given me space to just develop. But I don't know what strategies. I think just I I'm not really. I suppose a lot of it's like just not being too worried about things not working the way I think they're going to work. You know, I'm quite happy with the, f- I, that, that doesn't, there's lots of other things worrying me about being a scientist, but the sort of notion of just doing stuff and seeing what happens, I'm quite kind of, yeah, it's it's interesting because I've just started to try and set up a sort of small lab where I'm wanting to look at how people play video games collaboratively or, or, or don't, and, and I'm talking specifically more about things like Call of Duty. And you know, I'm just learning how to use things like vision mixers, and you know, H- you know, knowing just dis- you know a lot of stuff about video feeds I didn't know. And I, I kind of just, I like, I, 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 generate more ideas. I think when I'm messing around with stuff of that ilk. I guess so. So just experiment with the tech. I guess is part of it.
0: And it, that kind of sounds like that drives your ideas as well as giving you the skills to do new things.
1: Yeah, and I think as well, it's it's also. That's not to neglect, like, there's certain theoretical angles or, like, I'm quite interested at the moment in all the discussion within psychology about this generalizability crisis and how we measure things, how we do things. And I suppose that kind of makes me think, oh, well, you know, there's better ways we might be able to do some things, and that that sort of spurs me on. So it's not always technology-driven. It's sometimes driven from, like, theory or from what other people are doing. So it's somewhere in the middle. I mean, someone introduced me once and said... They looked at what I did, and they didn't believe I was a psychologist. They thought I was a computer scientist, and I I took that as a compliment. But I think, yeah, I've probably sat right in the middle. That's probably why I'm in a school of management now, which is all different, lots of different people from all over the place. So,
0: um, so how how have you? Because you've published in uh, in psychology, but also in computer science.
1: A little bit, yeah.
0: Um, that, how have you found that? Do you, Do you find have You had to like learn new skills in order to talk to those different sorts of audiences.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of like, um, yeah, there's certain languages that we all use, uh, you know. So, I mean, I was thinking, it still always reminds me that computer scientists sometimes describe an analysis as an experiment, which I can never get my head around, but I do, I deal with it, you know. Um, and I guess again, it's like you kind of. The people I've worked with who are psychologists were also working with computer scientists and they kind of embark this knowledge of almost like a kind of heads up sometimes, like, you know, that's what they'll do or that's, that's what we'll do. And in a way, I think when you're trying to solve a problem or, or do a bit of work, you know, no discipline is perfect on its own. No one's got all the answers. And I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with that. I think it is, it is challenging because you're learning a new language, i find I found that actually sometimes harder in medical journals just because it's it's a very but you work with people who are quite are blunt enough to say don't write that it'll get someone's back up or and it yeah it's it it probably makes you a better writer I guess because you're thinking about how different audiences will react and hopefully if anyone reads any of the work then that's always a bonus but it it's it's hard. I think, and I find it hard within the context sometimes of what universities expect of... an. As an As When I was more of an early career researcher, I think there's that notion if you've got your discipline, the things that the discipline wants you to do and your department wants you to do, and then you've got the things that the university wants you to do, and sometimes there's a bit of a conflict because every discipline's got its own um, little thing that it thinks is good. And management is no different, I've learned to any others, uh, and it, sometimes you have to feel that you're trying to do everything, so I've got to please the department, and I also want to do the stuff that I care about, and if I want to have an applied impact, I need to publish in a medical journal really, rather than a, maybe a psych journal, and yeah, it's. I think that's something that in a lot of places needs a bit of work sometimes, because it's, it's, it's really challenging, and it's not always recognised maybe as it should be.
0: But having this applied impact sounds like something that's one of the things that drives you.
1: I think it's easier for me to get up. Like, yeah, it's just easier to sort of, if there's an applied thing slapped on it, I can sort of think more critically about it and say, well, actually, and I think that also comes from the notion of leaving a laboratory. You know, people behave in a lab. It's not actually maybe how they're going to behave outside the lab. So if you want to change something or improve something or understand something, I'm quite keen on it is messy, you know. People are messy. I'm quite happy to embrace that, and that's okay. Uh, but yeah, I think definitely it's it's it, it probably drives me. In, in saying that, there's there's other things I've done where I think, what what on earth is this going to ever do? But then someone else might come along and say, oh, have you thought about that? So I, I think just it, I, I to say what I said earlier. I just, I'm always like when I reflect on stuff, I just think it's. Co- there's, for all there's the issues with academia it's just been able to just do stuff and think about stuff and that freedom's really nice
0: so one of the things that you've done with your freedom is to write a book
1: yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which,
0: which is perhaps not something that that everybody um in your position would have thought that's going to be like top of my list so where did that idea come from
1: I didn't. Again, it's it's not something that I had always planned to do. It was interesting explaining to people when I said I'm going to write this book, and you know, books have kind of in psychology fallen out of fashion a wee bit, and sort of like people saying, "What are you writing a book for?" It's not. You won't be putting that into the ref. What are you doing? Just do papers. Um, and I think I've again, I've probably been encouraged a lot by people to do things that I really want to do. And you've got those systems, but if you're doing what you really want to do, you have to you have to balance that a bit. And, I mean, I had built up a good collection of um, failed grant applications and, you know, stuff that I'd written and other bits of papers that would slot into a kind of story, if you like. And I thought, and I, I remember saying to my colleague at the time, I said, I, I might make a book out of this. And I sort of made a deal with myself where I thought, well, I'll send it to a publisher, just and, and this idea, and I'll see what they say. And I thought, well, if they say no, I might not pursue it. And they, they came back and they were very positive and said, you know, can you, can you give us a bit more? And then the reviews were quite positive. And so, and then they just left me alone to do it. And that was, that was great, you know. Um, and it is a bit of a, it's not indulgent, but it's, it is very much for you. I think there's, there's the book for as it is, but writing the book was just a really good excuse to read even more than I would have done. And have a disproportionate knowledge of something that has been really helpful, in then making other collaborations where people want to know something about a smartphone in that context. So I, I know the paper; I know that you know that's a good one to read or whatever. So it just came, it also came about due to frustration. The book it came about with the frustration of I'm sure it probably reads a bit like someone who's a bit frustrated at times. But it, the way psychology has gone about understanding modern technology is so baffling in some ways in that it's viewed as enemy number one rather than what could this help people with or what what could it help us understand um and there is so much of smartphone addiction or whatever you want to call it you know there's that is such a big area of psychology and i don't know why
0: so, I mean, I guess people looking at the title of your book, so smartphones with, within psychological science, like, might very well think that this is about the psychological harm that <laughs> yeah, smartphones yeah. might cause to us, right? Yeah. So, I, I um,
1: suppose there's a bit of that, but yeah. Um,
0: so for people who don't know this area, um, do you think that smartphones are something that we should be worried about? So you... You've already kind of alluded to the fact that there's a lot of people looking at this.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think um, I think smartphones, like any other technology, there there are potential harms, and there's and, and it's not different to necessarily the internet or other digital technologies. And in the work that I'm involved with now is very much about understanding what those harms are. Gen- I'll say genuine harms and how you can map them and mitigate them, and and you know, there's a lot of thinking about. Like a ta- what would a taxonomy of digital harm look like, for example? And there's quite a few people, other people who are doing work in that area. But psychology has spent a lot of time talking about more kind of general notions of technological harm. Very general to the point of they're quite difficult to define. So, like, smartphone addiction isn't recognised as a clinical thing, but it's talked about by people as if it is. And then when you look at how that construct happened or how internet addiction happened, it's so wafer thin that it's amazing that it's that it's lasted and there's a whole you know there's tons and tons of work so so a lot the book is partly about that but it's also just about where these are being used as research tools so there's lots of really great examples of work in in social psychology and personality psychology where the data from smartphones whether it's from sensors or from what we term, you know ecological momentary assessment that are really Making huge leaps, I think, in terms of what we're learning about people and challenging what we thought we knew in a lab, you know. So, so you've kind of got these two dual. I mean, so, so the, be- the best example is um, within cognitive psychology. So you've got a group of people, often a lot of computer scientists as well, I should add, who have you know been building applications that can do cognitive testing or video games that can test for early onset Alzheimer's or you know assess working memory. You've got another group of people who claim that smartphones are damaging children's cognition. Um, Now you've basically got a tool here that can measure exactly when you're using the device and do the cognitive tests, but these two groups are totally separate to each other, and no one wants to join in. The people who build the apps are just interested in what it can do, and the people who think it's a problem are basically they think it is a problem. I don't, you know, and never the two shall meet, and that gulf is in cognition phenomenal. It, it, it really the, way, the language that's used, the, 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 the whole literature bases do not overlap, yet the device could answer those really important questions if you wanted it to.
0: So the people who believe that smartphones are causing harm to children are not doing the science to demonstrate this?
1: Yeah, exactly. Not really. And I, I think there's, there's a whole host of problems. It's from, you know, there's actually understanding. I, I suppose if I was being really harsh and I've said this in the book, so it's not that harsh, but the very people who claim that the technology is the most harmful seem to know very little about the technology because if they knew more about it, it would totally change the way they went about doing the investigation. And that comes back to the notion of, you know, why do interdisciplinary research? That's a really good space to be in for that, to answer that question. Now, as with all books, since the book came out, people have gone and done exactly that. And of course they find that well, smartphones might not be the reason that, that kids' cognition is getting better, worse, or staying the same. Um, so it is happening. It's just taken, like, a long time <laughs> to happen. Um, and I suppose that's my own frustration with the field sometimes, is, is, is why that takes so long, I guess. Whereas computer science moves more quickly, psychology is a bit, you know, takes its time.
0: So I suppose the flip side of this, which you said that like the book also covers, is about how uh, psychologists can use smartphones as a data collection tool, and and it seems there that like the possibilities are almost endless. Really, I guess. So have you done work in that area yourself?
1: Yeah. So I mean, and I guess this came before. It's sort of weird. Like I was quite lucky when I started working at Lincoln. I got a grant to hire, uh, and I hired a postdoc, and I had a PhD student, and we were sort of just thinking about what this technology could be used to do. We never thought we'd get involved with the screen time debate or anything like that, but one of the most straightforward applications we could do at the time was collect usage. And it's funny that at the time, we just thought this was interesting, and we were showing that, oh, by the way, if someone estimates this, it isn't what they're actually doing, isn't that interesting? And it wasn't until like a year later where we probably did a bit more reading and we're like, wow, there's all this stuff that's saying these are addictive and it uses this estimate or this scale. And we're like, hang on, we showed that this this wasn't very good and it kind of revisited some of that work. Um, and I, you know, more recently, I've been fortunate that I've had PhD students who are psychologists background but have become basically software developers. So uh, Chris, who's, who's just finishing up his PhD now is basically made a phd out of building smartphone apps for psychologists and it's a very different way of developing if you were going to develop like a secure app or the you know it's it kind of tries to put participants at the front and center of of that collection process it, it it's cool that he's kind of learned all this stuff during his phd so yeah i suppose my experience is like again it's that mix of like technical and then trying to like an- use that to answer a specific question
0: what does it mean to put participants at the front and centre of data collection?
1: It's becoming quite challenging, actually. Psychology, historically, you collect like one data point. You know, you give them a measure or a scale. If you share it, it's just that one number. You know, if we're collecting someone's location data from their phone, that data is highly revealing. Almost certainly about where someone lives, where they work, probably. When I say putting them front and centre, I mean that participants are able to make the decisions about what they share and when they share it, and when they stop collection and when they start collection. Uh, I suppose we've been really lucky with like reviews. Of, reviewers of papers have pointed out a lot of things that we didn't necessarily think of was an issue. When, we, when, we build up, when Chris has built apps now, you know when they're running, let's say it's collecting usage data, there's always a little banner at the top that reminds people what's going on. But ultimately, we don't get any data until the participant actually presses the button to send it to us. It's not sent in real time. It's sent as a batch at the end, and it's encrypted. It's not just putting participants at the front and center. It's also like the way that we're building these apps is very incremental. It's not like, here's all the data from the phone, which would be you know, comparatively straightforward to do. Um, but we're kind of saying, right, we're interested in this thing. This is what we're going to investigate. And we've got reasons to do it, and then we can. We're kind of built. It's it, 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 classic psychology. It's a bit slower in a way, but it's it's to try and get this right because we don't want to publish apps that then cause another Cambridge Analytica or something. You know, it's. I think we're all mindful of of that. So it's it's about putting people in control of their data. I guess.
0: So you're thinking carefully about what data you really need to collect, and then uh, giving participants all the control you can possibly think of in terms of reminding them that it's being collected and they're the one that actually presses the button to send it to you.
1: That's right. I mean, I think that there's, there's things we could go further with and other groups have started to do things where they're using like differential privacy where researchers are, you know, it's much more controlled. You know, per- basically participants can withdraw their data afterwards. You know, so it, you know, so there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's some quite a bit of development in that area about how we get that right so i I mean it does feel a bit like making up the rule book sometimes because you know you're going to ethics boards and psychology and i won't name any specific institutions but some know more about this than others just by who's on the board and there's some things i look back on and think "Mm, i would have asked some more questions and then there's other things where you know they're asking the right questions but it's 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 not like running a lab task and then everyone leaves. And as the methods change and the data gets bigger, the rules are going to change. And I think the British Psychology Society needs to make sure that, that, is, that they're keeping up with what's going on because it, it is changing quite quickly. It's no, no easy task, you know.
0: Yeah, I think... Um... Certainly many institutions are becoming much more aware, I suppose, about these issues, about what data is being collected and how is it being stored and and also thinking hard about data that's in the public domain. So, uh, you know, issues around looking at data you might gather from a social networking site, for example, where you don't really have consent from for the people who were posting right they didn't know they were going to be part of a study um so there are a whole load of of like difficult things that people are grappling with
1: yeah and there's there's going to be mistakes as well and i think the early papers on facebook for example you've got like expressions of interest basically raising the exact point you've you've said there about well how did you get ethics well you didn't really get ethics um you know if someone tried to do that again now it would be like no you can't do that so it there is, it's really hard because it is a process of learning. And I mean, even in our work, you've got like, there's a development of how, how applications for the smartphone have got better or more secure because we're learning as we're doing it.
0: So given that so many people are kind of thinking about this at the moment, are there any kind of useful resources that they can look at to kind of help them even if it's just think through these sorts of issues?
1: I mean, I think there's there's a growing number of papers, you know, specific academic papers. There's this really good one from Dennis and colleagues called Privacy versus Open Science, which is a really good one about just just really partly raising these issues of how, how are we going to replicate all this stuff in the digital age? And I mean, there's also, it, it's also, I think, within medicine been discussed around... You know, some of the work I've done in the past, we, we get the data set, but we can never share the data set. And there's some cases where I think we probably could. There's ways of doing it, but that's not on the agenda. And these data sets are really expensive, and there, there's kind of this ongoing discussion. So, I mean, it is in, it is being mentioned in the literature in, in a variety of different places. Um, it all, but it all ultimately depends on, on how sensitive some of the data is, you know, that people are wanting to collect. Uh, I think the challenge for psychology is just partly people just becoming aware of what data is out there because it's so scattered. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting at the moment that the ESRC are kind of doing a sort of consultation on new and emerging forms of data. Uh, but by the time the consultation's finished, the new and emerging forms of data have already emerged and are new again. Like, it, it's really, I mean, I, that, I think they said that, not me, but that it, it's really challenging uh, and as, as things change. So, and, and it's all at the mercy of... Um, Often tech companies as to what they will release and, and what data is available, Facebook's changed probably for the better, but you couldn't replicate stuff that had happened in the past because facebook's changed and yeah there's not these are there's not really answers to to how we deal with some of these questions, but I suppose the more you use that data, the more this is me personally the more you get drawn into those discussions because they're they're important
0: and and I suppose that, you know over the past year um many psychologists who perhaps were doing a lot of their research in the lab have had to think about new ways of conducting that research and moving it all online and so many of these issues are kind of coming up for people who who might not have thought that they that these were things that would impact their research because they didn't think of themselves as necessarily engaging in digital data collection
1: yeah that's right and i think it's 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 changing a bit because up until recently, the biggest influence of the internet for psychologists had been more self-report scales and bigger samples. You know, So it was like, I've got this scale, I'll put it online, and I'll get thousands of people. Um, I think we're now at the point where more and more people are starting to say, well, what about beyond a scale? What else can I collect online? And again, it, I would say it's taken a bit longer than it maybe should have, but it's slowly that that is happening. And... That leads to those kind of questions as to well, just because we can collect this, should we be collecting it? And it's hard because some data you don't know how valuable it's going to be until afterwards. I don't think, I remember sitting in, in my office with uh, a postdoc and PhD student, and we were looking at people's smartphone usage data. And somebody said, oh look there, at 6am every morning, there's this line, and then there's a gap, and an identical line, and a gap. And we thought there was a problem with the software, and it turns out this was someone hitting the snooze button every morning, and we realised we could work out um, when, they were, when they were asleep and when they were getting up every day. It was a very conscientious student's spawn, I should say, because they were very regular early getting up in the morning. And we sort of thought, you wouldn't, we never thought we would know this. And you start to learn stuff, and you're like, oh this is, and that's, incidentally, how a lot of, you know, forensic psychology tries to catch the bad guys. You, you take a, a trace and you try and make better use of it. Um, so, yeah, it's really difficult because you don't always know until you've got some data.
0: So this idea of having, you know, looking at big, big collections of data and trying to understand people's behaviour is obviously something that underpins a lot of the different avenues of your own research. And I'm kind of interested to know how it impacts your own life. So do you collect data about yourself?
1: I don't, not really, no. I do have a colleague who I won't name who did spend a year collecting everything they possibly could about themselves. I believe there were some interesting insights. I can't remember what they were, but he basically went down the quantified self extreme and he was tracking everything. I've never really done that, you know. I have an Apple Watch and I use it to track my run, my run, you know, running, which doesn't change that much because there's no other sport to do at the moment. Um, I, you know, I, I, I spend a disproportionate amount of time in front of a laptop, like most academics probably, but I don't really collect. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, in terms of personal technology, if the technology is like useful. Uh, it, you know, and it stays. I'll keep it. You know, it'll become a part of every day. You know, it's as I said, I'm learning about you know video streaming and recording lots of video streams at the moment, and that's quite interesting. And I'll probably be annoying my partner about that because that's what I'm talking about a lot, and she might not be interested. But I have become quite obsessive uh, until I know everything about it. But then I'll it'll just go into the you know I'll I'll move on to something else. So yeah, it's. It's a, I suppose it's quite a kind of, I don't know, I suppose we started off by talking, it's all, sometimes people, I didn't really plan a lot of the stuff that I've ended up doing, it's just been quite fortunate that I've met people that have given me freedom to mess around with stuff and, and then sort of let me come up with ideas. That's what I've done with my PhD students as well, I think, is that kind of, let, provided it's people think the work's okay, when I mean people, I mean reviewers, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the whole messing about with things is sort of like the key to the the like how you've created your career in a way. Then it's I, yeah. I mean,
1: I, the more romantic notion would be that I'm this psychologist who's like looked at this theory and developed, you know. But I just, uh, as I said, my own attention span and patience is like I just want to learn stuff and do stuff. So it is quite hands on in a way and it's probably become it's become more and more technical in a way but then whether I'm learning all those technical skills there's that kind of handing over of what you're in what you know about and what you don't know about and I'm quite comfortable like I mean I'm probably a worse r programmer than I was a few years ago because other people you know, are, are just getting better at that. And they've they been trained up in their undergrad in psychology. I was never, I was taught SPSS or some nonsense, you know. And and so you kind of become, I've reached that point now where I'm sort of realising that, oh, I actually don't know. You know, there's other things I might know more about, but I'm kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, you just reach that point where people are, which is cool, because people are bringing stuff, like, oh, we should use this. And it's like, what what's that? Yeah, which is what my supervisor was doing to me, probably. At one point, I was that person that was coming to them, so...
0: So before we finish up, I wondered whether having um, had that experience of writing your book, you think you've got another book in you? Uh,
1: Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I I think it would be, I don't know what the book would be. Uh, There's, well, I think, I think there's some, if I was going to write, yes, is the answer to the question, I think so. Um, But I don't think I would probably want to write something that in a way is sort of, still academic but a bit less acad- academic in a way like i th- i think i'd i'm i'm really i've become more interested in how sort of we we do science and how and how universities work and and i think there's there's lots of things that that we get right but i think particularly within the social sciences there's a lot of things that i i don't think we we do right um and i don't think universities always get right sometimes either so i don't know whether if i was going to write another book it would be sort of thinking about how we, I mean, there's so many books on this already, you know, there's so many books on on, on, on just the, the state of science, if you like. Um, I don't know if there's a market, but I, I did start writing some notes down and then I sort of thought, I don't want to write another book quite yet. So I, I think I would write another book, but I haven't found the exact topic yet.
0: But maybe something about how we do science or could do it better?
1: Yeah, I think... I think, I think there's... Well, even even actually a book on sort of... I think being an ECR now is quite exciting in so many... This is my own opinion of how I see things changing in the last few, four or five years. I think it is still a really great time to be a scientist. But I, I do worry that ECRs are been asked to do so much stuff. Like, it's I thought it was bad when I was trying to get a permanent job. I, I feel now it is... You know, whether it... And again, it comes back to this the money's coming from interdisciplinary parts, but you have to serve your department and your single discipline as well, which means you basically have to do both, which I would, which is, I mean, I love my job, but there's sometimes I think, why have I had to do this, this, you know, what, why could I not have just focused on, on this? Um, and then there's the kind of impact and the ref and probably the TEF and the KEF, and it, it, it's a lot, and I don't know, I... I suppose I was naive, so I didn't really think as much about these things as I maybe should have done. But it's just, I, I, I think it is a challenge for, for ECRs to, to navigate that, maybe maybe more than it was a few years ago, I'm not sure.
0: So maybe a handbook for ECRs.
1: <laughs> yeah. How, how to get a job.
0: <laughs> I think there'd be a lot of people who'd buy that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're running out of time, so um, I just want to say thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Oh, thank you very much. It's nice to, to get that chance to just reflect sometimes. It's really nice.
0: Thanks so much to David Ellis. You can find him on Twitter at David A. Ellis, or one word. Uh, you can also find a link to his website and access to the show notes for this episode on our website, eworklife.co.uk where you can also find more evidence-based tips on using technology to support work and well-being, and a link to our new eWorklife radio app. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode. You can find me on Twitter at AnnaCox underscore. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, and you can also leave us a star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Claire Casson. This episode was sponsored by the EPSRC Get A Move On Network Plus. Music by scottholmesmusic.com. E-Work Life, powered by UCL Minds.